So I take my role as a teaching pastor very seriously. I, I believe, as a conviction of my own heart, that God has called me to bring fresh bread every single week, which means to try as best I can to not microwave somebody else's material, but to actually sit with my Bible and say, God, what do you want said to your family here at Christ the King? I consult other sources. Of course, I read books and articles and all the rest of it, but primarily, it's just my Bible and me saying, God, what in the world do you want said to your family on this particular day? Well, after the overwhelming nature of the last couple of weeks, if you've been around, you've heard me tell stories of we have been dealing with, with uh, intervening with families who are dealing with suicide. We've had medical emergency after medical emergency. We've had some tragic accidents. We did a, a huge memorial here on Thursday as our staff did the best to minister to the Milstead family and the loss of Sophia. And so I, I got to Tuesday looking at the week that was coming and I just thought to myself, I got, I got to get some help. Because you can't fake your way through Revelation 17 and 18. I mean, I, I looked at the schedule with what we were supposed to be preaching next coming this week in light of the last three weeks or so, and I'm like, are you kidding me? You actually want us to go through Revelation 17? I mean, if I could have picked a passage of Scripture, I could have picked a thousand other passages of Scripture that I thought were more applicable to where we were at as a church, and yet that's what God had for us. So I went looking for help. I went looking for help. I actually, I googled sermons, Revelation 17 and 18. And you know what I found out? There's no help on Revelation. <laughs> Nobody's preaching devotionally through Revelation 17 and 18. They're doing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and there's some good stuff in there. I'm like, there's just nothing there. I mean, this is not a passage you would read devotionally unless you wanted to give yourself nightmares that night. This is not a passage you can turn into a bedtime story for your children. Unless you're a sick and twisted parent, okay? I mean, it's, this is just really, really heavy stuff. And I kept thinking, should I do something different? Should I sidestep this one? But we made a promise at the beginning of the series, right? We were going to walk through every single chapter, every single verse, no matter how uncomfortable it made it. We were going to dig into this book, one of the most controversial books in all of the Bible. So if you're here and you're ready, grab your Bible or your outline. We're going to walk through it. And if you're a visitor... Um, Come back and see us again sometime. That's all I can say. All right. Revelation 17 opens with the Apostle John being invited by one of the angels. We met the angels last week. Seven angels who brought seven bowls of judgment and poured them out on God's people in the final days of the tribulation. It's not a pretty picture. It's difficult to wrap ourselves around. And then in Revelation 17, one of the angels comes to John and says, I'd like to introduce you to somebody. And he introduces her. And this is the description. Then I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Okay, you know you're in for an interesting week when the first couple of, of verses of this chapter introduce someone known as the great prostitute. Okay, parents, if you brought your kids with you, have fun defining that word to them on the way home. And once again, I will say as your pastor, we have amazing opportunities and environments for your children and you should put them there so you don't have to have uncomfortable conversations on the way home. Anyway, so the woman that's described here is described both symbolically and literally. There are symbolic and literal elements to her, okay? And don't get all freaked out on the gender stuff because there's been plenty of bad men already in Revelation and now we're just going to add a lady to the cast, okay? Literally, she represents both Babylon and Rome or the Roman Empire. I'll show that to you in a little bit. Babylon, what was an actual, literal kingdom 
And it exalted itself. If you read through scripture, Babylon shows up over and over again. And it exalts itself with, with, with excess and with godlessness. And all through scripture, we keep running into the Babylonians. It starts at the Tower of Babel, then morphs into the nation of Babylon. And the Babylonian people participate in the elevation of themselves over service to the most high God. In Revelation 17, 18, there's a direct line to what is known as the great city of Babylon. And in verse 9, there's a direct line to a city that sits on seven hills. Well, historically, you know, Rome sat on seven hills. So we see these two cities, these two empires that are known in Scripture for seducing people into immorality and evil. So symbolically, this woman, as we meet her in Revelation 17, symbolizes worldly seduction. And she's riding on a beast, okay? We've run into the beast multiple times in the first 16 chapters of the book of Revelation. And the beast symbolizes political structures, symbolizes the Antichrist, symbolizes the satanic leadership that's actually, at this time, getting ready to overthrow the world in the seven years known as the tribulation. And then we run into ten kings, and that's where you get the seven heads and, 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 and the ten different horns who band together with Satan and the Antichrist ultimately to persecute God's people. You still with me? Nobody freaked out yet? Okay, good. Now, the woman and the beast are basically summarized in one simple term. They are an unholy alliance. Let me break out a description of them. Okay, the woman on the beast, otherwise known as the face of evil in Scripture, here's some of the descriptions of them from verse number two. There's a coalition of immorality. Okay, the primary tool of this woman is seduction, and this is a warning to the church. Okay? I'm going to say something very, very bold. I believe it to be true. In this country, the greatest threat to God's people is not persecution. The greatest threat to God's people is the slow, subtle seduction that lures God's people into loving the world more than they love Jesus. And it's a slow process as we're just slowly drawn away as, as the enemy comes and says, no, this is a better idol. And this is a substitute for God. And you can actually serve both God and money at the same time. No, it's okay. You can keep a, a foot in both worlds. It's all right. It's a coalition that says, no, no, no. You don't need to just worship Jesus. You don't need to be different. You can dance in both worlds. It's a slow, subtle seduction. Number two, there's a description of blasphemy. The Bible describes this beast as being covered in the names that blaspheme God, that, that, that lies, spreading lies about Jesus and hurling curses at him. In fact, the beast itself, if you listen earlier in, in the chapters, it actually claims to be God. And we know that would be consistent because he's a liar. Number three, there's a mirage of beauty described in verse number four. You know, this is interesting to me. Even though the Bible says outrightly that the woman is evil, the Bible also says she's beautiful. Isn't that the way Satan works? He takes sin, something that he knows will break God's heart and destroy your life, and he dips it in something sickly and sweet. He dips in in candy so that it's enticing, so that it's attractive, so that we would just kind of want it because we all have that sweet tooth when it comes to sin, don't we? You know, Satan lures us away with the promise that, that sin is sweet, but I've learned something the hard way. Sin may seem sweet in the moment, but ultimately it's dangerous, it's deceptive, and it's damning. Got like three quiet amens. That's all right. 
You know, when do we learn the truth about the consequences of sin? My experience, we learn after it's already done. After I can't go back and fix it or make it right. I know this stuff is heavy. Stick with me. Number four, there's a descriptor of the murder of God's people. Verse number six says that the woman is actually drunk on the blood of believers, means that she participates actively in the martyrdom and the killing of God's people. And as I said earlier in the series, we don't get to push this one off and say, well, someday that's going to happen and hopefully I'm not going to be here for it. This is happening right now in our world. Brothers and sisters who are doing exactly what we're doing this morning are being persecuted and killed for naming Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Number five. In verse number eight, it describes it as sensual, subtle, and surprising. In fact, the Bible uses the word astonishing. I, I would put it this way. The woman and the beast, they're actually a, a sight to behold. John's a little bit transfixed by them. He's just like, wow, these guys are, they're scary. They're intimidating. They're evil. I mean, there's just something about it that's repulsive but attractive at exactly the same time. And he's so intimidated that it almost brings him to his knees. And God knows in that moment that we need a break. So he throws in a beautiful little promise, a little reminder of hope in the face of evil. We've said all the way through the series, we're going to answer two questions. Where is Jesus and where's the hope? Here's where you find it in verse 14 of Revelation 17. The Bible says this, they will wage war. So the beast and the woman, they will wage war against the lamb, meaning Jesus, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. That's encouragement, right? He actually tells us, this is how the book's going to end. So if you're a little freaked out right now, don't worry about it. Hang on. This is how the book's going to end. And then this verse closes with these words. And with him, meaning the Lamb of God, will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Got a question for you. Who do you want to hang out with in the end? The woman on the beast or the winner? That's the choice, right? In the end, Jesus wins. Take a breath. We go back into a description of the woman and the beast. Number six in verse 15, it describes her as being composed of humanity that rejects God. So in the shadow of the woman and the beast, the Bible actually describes it as part of the water that surround them are all those who've rejected God and have had the judgment of God come against them. I want to remind you again and again and again, judgment is reserved for those who reject God outright. So if you don't want to face God in his judgment, don't reject him. Don't reject him. And number seven, another descriptor from verse 16, it says they actually turn on each other because there's no conscience. I mean, if you read all the way through Revelation 17 and 18, there's kind of a surprise ending because they start off together, this woman and this beast, right? This coalition of evil are together. But in the end, the beast actually turns on the woman and destroys her. He dissolves their unholy alliance. He devours her. And there's a lesson to be learned here for all of us. There's a predictable outcome for every unholy or ungodly partnership. Ultimately, they will have to turn on each other for one reason. Because only one can sit on the throne of pride. And they are always in competition with each other. Ultimately, an ungodly alliance will always end up in dissolution because only one of them can have the throne and that's what they both desperately want. So that's the description of this woman and the beast. But that's not normally where people get hung up. 
In fact, most people read Revelation 17, and in the middle of the chapter, there's, some, there's words that are a part of the description. And this is where people get hung up. Okay, let me read it to you. It says, the name written on her forehead was a mystery. But it read, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Okay, this is not rocket science and this is not deep theologically, but I'm just going to step out on a limb here. That is not a name you want tattooed on your forehead. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, I, I got lots of labels I can assign to myself, you know, sinner, saved by grace, doofus, not very bright. I can own all of those titles. That is not a title that I want, you know, tattooed across my forehead. But people read those words, right? The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great. In some of your translations, it actually says mystery Babylon and they read that, and as soon as they see the word mystery, there's this natural instinct to have to figure out who is mystery Babylon. There's just something in us that goes, well, there's a mystery. I'm supposed to solve it, right? Even though all the way through Scripture, God keeps saying there's lots of things that are mysterious. And they're not for you to figure out because you're not going to be able to figure them out until you actually have a heavenly perspective of them. But people see mystery and they're like, i got to figure this out. So I'm just going to tell you something. If you Google Mystery Babylon on the internet, which you shouldn't because <laughs> it's a glorious waste of time, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find all different kinds of people. Don't ask me why. Most of them have a southern accent. I have no idea why that works, but it's what you're going to find, okay? And they're going to produce little tiny videos who are going to name Mystery Babylon. Anybody want to even guess at what the most popular answer is as to the identity of Mystery Babylon. Are you ready for it? Survey said, ding, the United States of America. Ooh. Let's ask Grant a question. <laughs> Who is Mystery Babylon? Here is my theological answer. I don't know. <laughs> and neither do you. But that's the number one answer. There was a few ISISs in there, one or two North Koreas, and two guys actually said Canada. I don't know that. Uh, <laughs> just saying, okay, all right. Here's what we know about Mystery Babylon. It's actually not classic Babylon, and it's not Rome because they're not world powers anymore. And I also want to point something else out to you. I think this is the wrong question to be asking. I mean, let me just think about this for a second, right? I think it's the wrong question to be asking, who is Mystery Babylon? Because if you read all the way to the end of Revelation chapter 18, the Bible says Mystery Babylon will be destroyed. It's right there in black and white. So I have a question to those of you who are obsessed with figuring out who Mystery Babylon is. Why would I waste my life trying to figure out the loser when I could be spending my life loving and serving the winner? Just ask now, some of you are just like, okay, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with my life in Whatcom County in 2015? That's a great question. Was the vision unfolds, I think we can actually learn about, a lot about our own situation these days. Because what's interesting is all of the markers of Babylon and Rome have a very sobering modern implication. I listed a few of them in your outline under the heading, The Subtle Marks of a Babylon-Rome Mindset. Let's walk through them together. Number one is this. 
In a Babylonian Roman mindset, compromise is the norm. All through Revelation, God keeps calling His people out of compromise. He, kept saying, he keeps saying, no, no, no. Don't compromise. Stand for what is right and good and true. Stand for what is pure. Stand on God's standards, no matter how much culture may preach against you. He keeps calling His children to not follow the world's rules, to stand for what is good and right and pure. And can, can, let's just say this. Can we admit that there are opportunities for compromise around every single corner of our culture? Just opportunities to compromise, right? To be okay with it. Now, no, that's not black. That's not white. No, 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 no. It's okay. You, you can dance in the gray all you want to. Our culture begs us to say, to, to actually, ha, ha, you, you know, God says you can't serve God in money. But our culture says, oh, no, oh, yes, you can. No, you can, you can serve both of them. It's okay. You can get a handshake deal between the two of those. Our culture says, no, here's your job. Your job as a follower of God is to keep your mouth shut, don't share your opinion with anybody, and just tolerate everything that's going on around you. Has anybody else noticed that? No, no, you're supposed to. You, that, that's, that's your job. Just don't offend anybody. And God keeps saying, somebody has to lovingly speak the truth. Someone, someone has to actually be willing to stand up for what God believes is right. I can tell you from experience, if you stand up for what God believes is right, that will make you a target at some level, no matter how loving you may try and be. But you have to choose. Do I want the accolades of the short-term popularity of humankind, or do I want the eternal reward that God promises when you get home? So, Compromise is the norm. Number two, excess is supreme. In both of these kingdoms, excess became their downfall. And in our modern world, we could try to deny this, but I think it's difficult. Because can we admit that our culture is pretty much obsessed with excess? Like we just want more and more and more. I mean, I, I say it every time we do a stewardship series, right? The number one fastest growing cottage industry in the United States of America is storage units. We don't even have enough room for all of our stuff. We have to rent extra rooms. And it begs us to ask a question. And I'm not preaching at you. I'm pointing fingers right back at me. I mean, God has just been like staring into my soul, asking me a difficult question to answer as a quote-unquote modern American. Here's the question. When is enough enough? I mean, how much stuff does one human need before I can say, I'm satisfied? I mean, I'm asking myself the same question in the shadow of the fact that just a couple of months ago, a whole bunch of you made a decision, a decision that I was so unbelievably excited about because you decided to say no to something that you probably wanted and instead you gave money for a classroom that you're probably never going to see that now is the home for 111 girls that are not going to be pushed into arranged marriages because they're going to have the tool of education. And along with education, they also get these wonderful classes about this amazing person called Jesus Christ. You made a decision to go there. Thirdly, here's another marker, that money and power are the ultimate goal. 
Both of these kingdoms were bent on conquest. I mean, just do history on Babylon and Rome, and you'll find they were just bent on conquest. And it's so easy to take a set of binoculars and stare at their conquest and not turn a microscope around and look at our own. Let me ask you a question. What are you trying to conquer for the sake sake of just elevating your own status? What's your motivation to get to the top of an organization or maybe even a church? Are you motivated because you, you know if you can get there, you'll have an opportunity and a platform to make Jesus famous? Or do you want to get there because you just love the thought of a corner office with a nameplate on the door? I mean, God just put, there is nothing wrong with aspiring or having unbelievable goals or creating a company from scratch as long as the ultimate goal is the same thing. Jesus on the throne and you serving Jesus. I mean, if we need a motto right now, it would be this, never higher than his feet. Number four, another Babylonian Roman mindset, just kind of a marker, is that ungodly partnerships ultimately lead to ruin. I mean, whenever an earthly kingdom yokes itself up with evil, they're welcoming God's judgment. Now, before we just pass that off and go, yeah, absolutely, the corporate world in America is all messed up. Let's make that personal. Whenever a human being yokes itself up with evil, they're welcoming God's judgment. If you don't believe me, read the book of Revelation. All of these markers that we find in Scripture as God details it out in Revelation 17 and 18. What's amazing to me is they all promise fulfillment, right? If you just have enough stuff, Grant, then you'll be fulfilled. If you have enough money, Grant, then you'll be fulfilled. If you just compromise on that, it'll move you ahead over here, and that will fulfill your heart. But we all know the truth about that, don't we? They all promise fulfillment, but you always end up empty. They promise security, but they're not secure. I mean, I am so quick to forget the lesson of 2008. Do you remember what happened in 2008? Our economy, the same one that's described here, is Babylon and Rome, which ended up collapsing. It it, it collapsed on us. And we all freaked out because we found out that the idol of money and security was not nearly as stable as we thought it was. You know what's amazing? I can actually look back in the attendance charts in 2008. Where did everybody run when the economic world in the States collapsed? All of a sudden, we come running back because we found out that what the world promises is security is not secure at all. In fact, listen to this truth from the Bible about these two economic kingdoms, Babylon and Rome. Just listen to these two. The Bible says this, woe. Okay, not woe as in like woe horse, but like woe as in this is not good for you. Woe. Okay, W-O-E. Woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. How long did it take God to bring these kingdoms to their knees? According to Scripture, about an hour. The Bible goes on. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living by the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? And they'll throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe to you great city where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. 
You guys are really quiet this morning. It's heavy, isn't it? I mean, but Jesus basically in Revelation 17 and 18 gives us a lesson in economics. Here's some practical wisdom in dealing with today's system. And if you read through Revelation 17 and 18, you'll see all of these underscored as you read this unbelievably tragic look at at two kingdoms that God brought to their knees because of their pride and their arrogance. But here's some practical wisdom. Number one, people are more important than products. Like, do we know that? People are more important than products. If you're a business owner, your employees are more important than your bottom line. I mean, I'm talking both directions here. I don't care if you're management or a line worker. People are more important than products. Here is the issue with Babylon. They were known for what they produced. Here was the problem. That kingdom didn't produce godly people. It just produced a lot of stuff. People are more important than products. We need to know that. Number two, pride will kill programs, plans, and successes. I mean, we spend all of our time building these great marketing schemes. And we think, this is going to help me arrive. And then I'll be able to say, that was my idea. And we don't like it when the Bible puts up his hand and says, excuse me. But according to the Bible, it says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So can you come up with a great marketing scheme in the midst of biblical humility? Yeah, you can. When you realize that the ultimate end is not to get yourself on the king of the universe throne, but to make sure that Jesus stays on the throne of your life. Number three, profit will never justify compromise. I mean, that's the way it happens, right? It's just slow, subtle compromise. Oh, it's okay. You can take some money under the table. It's okay. You can just deflate that number on your taxes. It's not a big deal. Until God shows up and says, actually, if you're willing to compromise in the small, you may get a bit of a a human payoff at some level, but ultimately in eternity, you're going to come up short. What's the answer? Do the right thing. I mean, I know that's not theologically like, wow, that's what you got from church today. Maybe that's the thing we need more than anything. Maybe that's what I need more than anything today. With whatever situation I run into this coming week, what if my first question was, how could I do the right thing? Oh, that's number four. Number four, godly decisions will keep you from mourning ungodly results. I mean, here's a question that easily disappears in corporate America, right? It's like, what's the right thing to do? What's it so easily replaced by? Another question, what's the most profitable thing to do? You know, it's so easy to deflect this stuff, right? I mean, I'm reading this this week, I'm studying this, I'm like, I can shift this to everybody else in the room. I can deflect this. Because at some level, there's something deep inside all of us that basically says, I can do what I want. This is my business. That's different than my spiritual world. We start thinking, I'm a big deal in Whatcom County, and after all, the end justifies the means, and it's cutthroat out there. Come on, Grant, that's what you don't understand. If I don't bleed somebody else, they're going to bleed me. And it's so easy to get caught up in the arrogance of believing that somehow we're the grand exception. You know what's scary? The woman gets caught exactly the same way, believing that somehow she's the great exception. Revelation 18, it says this, in her heart, she boasts and she says, I sit as queen. I'm not a widow. I will never mourn. 
That's an arrogant statement. You know what that says? That says, I'm invincible. May God ever protect us from ever being so arrogant to believe that we are somehow invincible because of our geography. The Bible goes on, therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her, death and mourning and famine. She will be consumed by fire. Listen to this, for mighty is the Lord who judges her. Aren't you glad you came to church today? I was so encouraged. This is awesome. You have no idea how tempting it was to just take a break and do something else this week. Until God said, don't be afraid of the truth. That's what he said to me. You know, the Bible has a phrase for not doing business God's way. It's called loving the world. You find it all through Scripture. We often forget that the Apostle John wrote more than just Revelation, right? He was given Revelation as a revelation of Jesus Christ. Not a revelation of the end times, not a revelation of a big chart, not a revelation of a picture with a dragon and a woman on it, nor a revelation of Jesus Christ, but he wrote more than just that. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John wrote these words, that he who has ears hear what God has to say to the churches. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, remember what we talked about at the beginning? What was the primary tool that the woman used? She used seduction. What you fell in love with, with your eyes. Looking outside of your marriage relationship at this human being or that human being or, or looking outside of your relationship with Jesus lustfully at that woman or that particular man, however it works for you. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, what's that? The lust of the eyes is what draws us towards excess, right? If I just had a flat screen that was 10 inches bigger, then I will have arrived. If I only had X number of gigabytes on my phone, then the hole in my soul will be filled and I will be satisfied. <laughs> lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. What's the third one? We just talked about it, the pride of life. Thinking that we're all that. Everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. Here it comes. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever and ever and ever. Yeah, you know how it goes, right? Here's the message of Revelation 17 and 18 in a nutshell. I boiled it down into two sentences. Love of the world pushes out love for God. And the Bible says you can't have it both ways. You can't love God and the world at the same time. Secondly, love for God pushes out love of the world. And in Revelation chapter 18, God has a specific word for the people of Christ the King Church in Whatcom County in 2015, in the month of August, on whatever day it happens to be. God has a word for those who are having to make a choice today whether or not they're going to continue to try and dance in both worlds, loving God and loving the world at the same time. God is a specific world to those of us who feel like we're being called to compromise. Because let's face it, in our modern culture, when we compromise, it does make our temporary world just a little bit easier, doesn't it? When we're tempted in those ways, this is what God 
calls us to do in Revelation 18, verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. To the people that were wrapped in Rome, come out of Rome. To the people who were wrapped up in the Babylon Empire, come out of her. To those that are in any other kingdom that's ever set itself up on the face of this earth, God says to His people, come out of her, my people, so you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. What's God's invitation? God says, leave that behind. Come out of her and live. Come out of her and thrive. Come out of her and find out whether or not our God will actually protect us when we stand for what is good and right and pure. Come out of her and stand with strength. And don't be afraid to speak a word of love into a culture that doesn't want anything to do with you. Come out and don't be obsessed with trying to figure out the identity of the loser of Revelation. Instead, wrap your life around the love and the service of the winner of the book of Revelation. Come out of her and live. I got to see a picture of this on Thursday. 1,200 plus people sitting here in this worship center mourning the loss of an 18-year-old girl who died tragically in our community just last week. You know, I was amazed as I saw people grieve and mourn and find hope in Jesus. I saw it. Not a single person was talking about stuff. Not a word was mentioned about how much we had accumulated. Instead, the wealth of that moment was actually found in the relationships as people consoled each other and wiped away each other's tears. The wealth was found in the relationship. It was found in the tears. It was found in the hope that eternity holds so much more for those who love God. Because in the next coming weeks, finally... We're going to talk about Jesus coming back. We're going to talk about eternity. We're going to talk about heaven. And we're going to talk about the fact that in heaven, when we get there, that eternity holds answers and it holds joy and it holds reunions and it holds reward for all of us who may be dealing with the broken hearts of last week and the week before that. For those of us who hold on to the promise that one day God will come back and wipe away every tear from our eye, I want to promise you, as heavy as this has been, it's going to get so much better for the next three weeks. Because in eternity, we meet the one who holds all of the answers and explanations. We hold the one who has all of the stuff, just in case you missed it at any other point. Your stuff is not your stuff. It's on loan from the one who owns all of the stuff, and he has so much stuff it never exhausts him to be able to share some of it with you. So you should use it for his honor and his glory because it's got his ownership tag on it, not ours. That is not in my notes. It just showed up, okay? So... But next week, finally, Revelation 19, a very large God is going to show up on a horse 
with a tattoo and a sword. And he's going to bring the right kind of judgment. Next week, God's going to show up and say, enough is enough. Time for my kids to have a party. Time for the enemy of our soul to be wrapped up in chains and bound for a thousand years. Then we'll deal with him at the end of time. Next week, we actually get to this beautiful promise. When God says, even so, I am coming soon. To be continued. I'm not out of preaching. I'm out of time. Would you pray with me this morning? God, in the midst of all of the heartache that we have experienced as a church in the last couple of weeks, we still find joy because you've called us out of Babylon, called us out of Rome. You've called us out of whatever earthly kingdom we've assigned ourselves to, and you still have opened the door right now of grace and mercy and forgiveness. So God, we celebrate the fact that the door is open. And Lord, in the midst of this unbelievably confusing passage of Scripture, I pray that we would find hope in the fact that you said that in the midst of all of this, the Lamb comes and triumphs over any earthly kingdom that has set itself up against you. And with the Lamb of God is His dearly loved, chosen children. So, Father, we, we are so humbled today to be numbered that way. Father, I pray for any person here who has never given their heart and surrendered their heart to the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would meet you in your grace so they never have to worry about meeting you in your judgment. God, thank you for walking us through some heavy, heavy stuff. God, I pray as we go home today that we would not feel guilty for the blessings you've given us, that we would simply see them as opportunities and tools to steward so well your blessing. God, would you make us grateful, fill our hearts with gratitude as we look forward to the day when we will be given true riches for all of eternity. So God, for those in the room who have been chosen to steward much, I pray that they would steward it well. For those who have been chosen to steward a small amount, I pray that they would steward it well. And may it all be done to the glory of God our Father. And we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people say, Amen, Amen, Amen.